Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. This is Doug McCullough from the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, today, my typical, uh, my normal compadre, Josiah Neely, won't be joining us because he is out on paternity leave. Uh, but I am joined today um, by Perth Toll. She is the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. So, Perth, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as you and I were just talking about a little bit offline, our, our typical podcast is typically very policy oriented um, but since Josiah was away I wanted to do something different and uh, and do a financial um, episode and uh, you and I've been talking about having you come on the show for a little while um, because you actually have a uh, an ETF that I would say has obviously has a very different type of approach that in my mind and I'll let you sort of describe it in your own words but it has sort of a uh, an approach that has sort of an economic policy perspective as well as a financial investment perspective. So tell us about your, your, your fund and what's unique about it. Yeah, thanks. So, so I provide the index for a, 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 an ETF that tracks emerging markets based on their levels of personal and economic freedom. So um, as you know from from our meetings together with uh, the Fraser Institute, the Cato Institute, uh, Friedrich Nauman, and so forth, um, I use their data um, to come up with the the country weights based on their country scores. So we use only emerging markets because in emerging markets there's a lot more discrepancy between freedom levels between countries. So you have the very free, you know, countries, you know, like uh, Taiwan, South Korea, Poland, and Chile, and then you have countries like China, Russia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. So we saw some opportunity for the freedom premium in in the emerging markets. So that's why we started there. And what we do is we take basically the country scores given to us by these think tanks that I mentioned. We turn those into country weights, and the countries that have the higher freedom levels end up with higher weights and the countries with the lower freedom levels end up with lower weights and the worst offenders as far as human and economic freedoms are excluded altogether from the index great so uh, you mentioned that you you're doing this from a perspective are you seeing that there's a potential premium there and i think i heard you on a recent podcast from seeking alpha where they asked you if this is an esg fund and um so what's your response to that well you know is this like an esg fund so I think this has the spirit uh, of ESG funds, but we don't do it the way that uh, most ESG funds are done in the industry now. So most ESG funds currently are um, driven by the security level data. So um, coming from like each particular country and, and their own mostly self-reported data um, to drive country weights. What we do is we use country level third-party think tank data to drive um country allocations and then the security weights fall within those allocations so it's more top down um, so so it's not the traditional ESG as we now call it in our industry however the metrics that we use things like the rights to life liberty and property and life being things like terrorism trafficking torture liberty being things like rule of law freedom of speech freedom of media um, freedom of religion and so forth and uh, property rights being your economic freedoms like taxation rule of law private property rights, um, you know, freedom to trade internationally. A lot of these are um, considered, especially the life and liberty metrics, are considered ESG metrics. 
we just don't use them in the, the way that the industry currently uses them um, as far as a bottoms up approach or more of a top down country driven approach. Right. So is this more than just a, uh, you know, an approach where you're trying to attract investors who are sort of like like minded? Can you, you know, with it, and how, how long has the fund been around? Have you been able to really show that there is this premium for investors? Yeah, so the fund was launched uh, May 23rd of 2019, so it's less than a year old. Um, we have tracked basically the uh, underlying benchmarks pretty much uh, almost perfectly. So, so it's not currently showing that it's outperforming or underperforming. It's basically tracking the, um, the, the underlying benchmarks, and we use MSCI Emerging Markets as the benchmark uh, because that's what 90% of our clients use for their benchmark for emerging markets. So, um, so, and that's exactly how it's supposed to behave. It is supposed to be a different exposure to emerging markets because most emerging markets funds are market capitalization weighted and due to market capitalization weighting the highest country, um, as far as market cap gets the highest weight. So you end up with about 34 to 37% in China in all the market cap weighted emerging markets funds. Um, and so people that don't want to have that much country concentration in a country that has a lot of geopolitical risk may want this different exposure. So this is what we created it to be, which is a different exposure to most people's current emerging markets funds that they're using, but still tracks well and has high, a high correlation to that benchmark. So compared to other emerging markets funds, what, what countries would you not include? Um, and maybe what are some uh, countries that maybe are uh, con- uh, countries that other funds might uh, overlook that maybe you've included, but like China, uh, is that included in your fund? Yeah, so we have zero allocation to China, so we have no direct exposure. Now, there's a lot of indirect exposure to China. You can't get away from that because even if you're investing in the U.S., like Apple has a lot of production in China, Starbucks does a lot of business in China. So you can't get away from that indirect China exposure. And we do not penalize freer countries for their free trade with the unfree countries. Um, that's, you know, up to them to do. And, and we actually encourage free trade. They get a higher score for more free trade. So we don't penalize countries for doing business with China. We just don't have any direct exposure to countries that are domiciled in China. Um, and then, so that's the biggest difference because it's such a huge weight in all the other emerging markets indexes. Um, and then some other countries that we include are, um, we have a high weight in Taiwan and South Korea, which gives us that high correlation to those heavy in China benchmarks. Um, but we also have high allocations in Poland and Chile, which surprises a lot of people who are not from the think tank world, who are familiar with freedom levels. We know from the data that Poland and Chile are very free emerging markets. Um, but because they're smaller markets, they have about 1% weight in the other in the benchmark indexes. So, um, so that's a very different country exposure than the benchmarks. And I think you mentioned uh, Estonia. And I, that, that, I'm not sure that one catches as many yeah, people by so surprise. Es- but Yeah, Estonia is actually, as you know, from the, the data that our friends do, um, they are, you know, on the same freedom level as the U.S. <laughs> so, but they're they're a frontier market, so they're not in our index either. So that's a whole different classification as far as you know um, the emer- emerging versus frontier market. So, um, for listeners who may not be as familiar, so so div- so there's three um, classifications of international or global markets. There's 
developed markets, and those are countries like Germany, Japan, UK, US. These are countries that are large and very well developed, and the institutions are in place and very strong. Um, and there's you know certain GDP levels and so forth. But just because the IMF defines a country as developed doesn't mean the investment world does. So the invest in the investment world, who determines this is, or at least in indexes, is MSCI and FTSE. So they basically set the standard on wh what countries are developed, what countries are emerging, and what countries are frontier. Emerging, you have countries like China, Russia, uh, Brazil, India. Those are probably the, the most well-known ones. But also, you know, South Africa, Poland, Chile, now Argentina has been uh, promoted to emerging. Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, South Africa, and so forth. Thailand, Indonesia. So those types of countries that are in between the frontier and the developed markets. So these are countries that are emerging out of being frontier markets, and they're they're in a in a um, development cycle that's supposed to lead them to be hopefully tomorrow's developed markets. Um, but their institutions are not quite strong enough, or uh, their markets big enough to quite be classified as developed. And then you have the frontier markets, which are the very smallest countries um, and still on the cusp of development. So these are countries like Nigeria, Estonia, and so forth. They're just too small to be emerging markets. But like we said, some of them can be extremely free, like Estonia. So um, these, again, classifications are just set by industry standards, which are set by MSCI and FTSE. So talk a little bit more about what defines economic freedom? And I know you're looking to some of the work from other think tanks, but what you know, what, what all goes into this mix of economic freedom? And is there an overlay with other personal freedom that maybe we don't necessarily think of directly as economic freedom? How does it all fit together? And and I guess part of my perspective there is, you know, if you have a state that maybe uh, seems to be capitalistic, but is a little bit more authoritarian when it comes to personal matters. How does that score uh, with your index? That's a really good question. And I don't get asked that very often because I usually do these podcasts with finance people who don't go <laughs> that deep into the, the economic freedom versus human freedom side of it. So you being you know familiar with, with, the, with the subject matter, that's, that's a really good question. So so yes, so economic freedom is the three, the five main categories, as you are very familiar with, are basically uh, taxation, um, rule of law, including private property rights, sound monetary policy, or what we call sound money, freedom to trade internationally, and business regulations. So this is basically the lack of coercive restraint to to lead your economic life as you would like. Um, I believe Jim Gortney um, came up with that definition for economic freedom, the lack of restraint. So that's what, what we use as far as economic freedom metrics is the negative freedoms, which are what you are uh, not told, I guess, not to do. So um, so, so the freer the, the, the market, basically, the higher the economic freedom score. Um, and how this relates to, to human freedom is... If a let's say you're in a in a country that uh, the, where the government decides who gets the, the top job, so, so let's let's use China as an example since it's such a, a big elephant in the room right now. So, you know, in China, if you're a member of the Communist Party, you are obviously going to um, get 
better positioning as far as your job goes. Um, or in some other countries, right, if you're in Saudi Arabia and you're a member of the royal family, right, you're going to get better positioning as far as job goes. So if the government or a few that are select few in power um, determine your kind of livelihood or how you can, you know, make money or um, uh, be in business uh, and make a living for your family, then, then they have power over you um, and you don't truly have personal freedom, even if you can, you know, even if you're not being tortured or kidnapped or, you know, disappeared and, and so forth. So it does work together and economic freedom is, um, you know, as, as, as our friend uh, Bob Lawson has done a paper on, it is, and a lot of other uh, luminaries have done, done the study, it is a necessary but not sufficient condition for human freedom. So economic freedom right. is a necessary but not sufficient condition. But it has to be there, that is the foundation. So first of all, you have to have economic freedom and then you have to have human freedom on top of that. Um, but you can't have true human freedom without economic freedom because if, if you're not free to um, do it, to basically you know, um, make a living, then, then you're not free at all because you can't survive. So. Um, so, so they do work together. And, and one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to totally butcher this uh, because I don't <laughs> do this very often, but, you know, we don't get into this very often. But um, the, you know, what Jim Gordney said about all the freedoms being like the parts of an automobile, right? You can have, you can't have a steering wheel without a transmission. The, the car's still not going to run. So you have to, all the freedoms are interrelated and work together. And we do see some exceptions of this, Singapore being the top exception, um, Hong Kong becoming another outlier in this sense right now, just because they're in a kind of a limbo phase. Um, so, so we do see exceptions to this. Um, you know, my friend Melissa Chen was re recently on a, a podcast um, with Joe Rogan, where she said this quote that I love that she says, which she's from Singapore, and she said, you know, Singapore is like Disneyland with a death penalty. And she'll be the first to tell you, I didn't invent <laughs> that. But, uh, but yeah, that's, you know, exactly what it's like. So, um, so yeah, so the freedoms all work together and um, they're all interrelated. That's why we use the Human Freedom Index and data set by the Cato Institute, the Fraser Institute, and the Friedrich Nauman Foundation, because it is the most comprehensive data set that I have found that encompasses both human freedoms and economic freedoms. Plus, the data is quantitative. Well, I want to I turn in a second to sort of your background, your the, you know the the origin story, if you will. But uh, maybe this is sort of a transition because it, as we're sort of talking about, you know, we earlier talked about the origin of the index, and I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit. Um, you, you know, I asked how long the fund had been, the index had been around, and uh, you know, it sort of has a, a limited lifespan for. Uh, tracking its performance, but before the index was uh, actually launched, had you done any historic research that shows um, if this type of investing approach would actually uh, have the type of uh, returns that you would uh, you would expect? Yeah, so so economic freedom um, data does go back quite a while, um, but human freedom data, the quantitative set, doesn't go back quite as long. Uh, we did have the index calculated uh, for a couple of years before we, there was a fund that was based on it. So the index, the Life and Liberty Freedom 100 Emerging Markets Index, did start calculating in 2017. 
And we did do a back test at that point, back going back five years. So what our data showed and our back test showed, um, and I don't, and let, and let me just talk about the data, not the back test, because um, mm -hmm. we're not supposed to focus too much on the back test. But the data, the live index data, showed that basically the freer countries grow more sustainably. So, so some of the, sometimes you see a lot of growth in the unfree markets. China, again, prime example of a lot of debt-driven infrastructure-related so-called GDP growth. Uh, but that's not sustainable. So we see more sustainable growth in um, the freer countries. We see faster recoveries from drawdowns. So when the market gets hit, the, they recover faster than their um, you know, broad market, uh, both free and unfree counterparts. Um, and they, they use their human and economic capital more efficiently. So they have mm -hmm. less capital flight and capital destruction. Um, and uh, so, so those three things, you know, and if you look at history, the freer markets tend to be the ones that are more dynamic and the less free markets tend to be more stagnant. Uh, recently, Human Progress, um, the Twitter account, which is run by Cato, posted the, you know, what happened with Chile versus Venezuela in the last couple decades. And, you know, whereas they used to be both kind of in the same spot now, Chile is highly free and has grown much faster. And Venezuela, of course, as we know, is has become one of the, the least free countries in the world. And it's right. hugely stagnant and just to a tragic degree. So, uh, so these, so, you know, history does show that the freer countries perform much better over time, but that's going to take time to tell. And it'll take literally decades. Um, so we can't look at the day-to-day -day, um, kind of performance versus we have to we have to literally look at decades. You may, uh, we'll see if this makes the cut in the final version of the uh, <laughs> uh, the interview. But uh, you, and this is I, I think I recall something from the Seeking Alpha uh, interview. But you mentioned Venezuela, and which is uh, particularly. An area that I, I, I have some sympathies for because one of my law partners is from Venezuela. He's even been on this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but, but if I'm not mistaken, um, one of the questions um, in the Seeking Alpha interview that you did recently, uh, there was a question about the correlation between economic freedom and countries that have rich resources. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Is there any... Um, you know, do you tend tend to see more economic freedom in countries that maybe have to be a little have a little bit more, I don't know, technological innovation versus countries like Venezuela that are rich in resources where the state can take control of that and then start to really uh, ratchet down economic freedom? Yeah. So a couple of things there. One is yes, we do see a lot more um, the, of the technology sector being a bigger part of the economy in um, the freer market. So you'll, you'll notice that with our fund as well, is that it's heavy in technology uh, and less heavy in materials and uh, financials even. Um, actually, no, financials is about the same, but in materials, it's, it's a lot less heavy and then uh, it's a lot heavier in um, technology. So we do see that in our country set is that the freer markets do have a lot more innovate, a lot more innovation and technology um, sector is, is strong. Um, but as far as uh, natural resources, it is ironic that a lot of the 
more oppressive countries do, a lot of the unfree countries do have a lot of natural resources and yet they're still stagnant. So mm-hmm. a lot of times what happens there, what we see is that the, the, the people, the, the regime in power uses those natural resources as kind of a, like a, a way to stay in power. So it legitimizes their power as they use it to cement their power and to kind of, uh, instead of giving the power to their constituents and for people to innovate and prosper with, with those natural resources, they, like you said, um, take control of it and kind of squat. It, it's not used as efficiently. It, it doesn't innovate as much. And um, so even though they have high natural resources, they don't use it as efficiently and it doesn't lead to a more dynamic economy for them. So we see that a lot as a pattern in these kind of oil rich countries, especially. And you saw that in Russia as well. Right. Now, I, I would I would speculate that part of that is that in countries that have resource wealth, they can use that wealth to sustain their regimes. But if you are a country without those resources, you've got to really rely on the talent of your people. And that's where your wealth is. Yeah, that's actually a really good uh, analysis of it. So I would agree. So I, I, I mentioned that I wanted to get into sort of your, your origin story, your background. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, as a, as a business lawyer, I talk to entrepreneurs and budding entrepreneurs all the time. It's always interesting to hear their story. Um, you're the first person I've met who started an index, although I can't tell you how many friends of mine have, have told me that they want to start a, you know, private equity fund, a venture capital fund, and, and even try to rope me into being part of it. (laughs) But this is a very different story. Um, what's your background? How did, how did this all happen? Yeah, so I grew up in both China and the U.S. I was born in Beijing, and I grew up there until I was about nine years old, and then I moved to Texas um, and grew up here, mostly in Dallas after that. And um, and then I went to college at, in Texas at Trinity. Um, and after college, I went back and lived in Hong Kong for about a year. When I was in Hong Kong, I saw some things that shocked me as someone who had their formative years in a mostly free society. So, uh, you know, I went to the mainland on weekends and such, and, you know, took trips to like Shanghai and Beijing, obviously Shenzhen being very close to Hong Kong. Um, And I just saw things um, that, you know, to someone who was used to to being in the States um, were shocking. So one of the things is uh, one of my friends who was at the, you know, exact same age as me, um, she was extremely intelligent. She uh, was very, you know, just had... No difference from any of my friends in the U.S., except she doesn't exist on paper, right? She she was the second child born in her family, and her family did, decided to register her brother, the boy, for school, which makes her one of the lucky ones because there's actually 30 million missing women in China since the institution of the one-child policy at the beginning of my generation. So in the last 30 years, well, now it's a two-child policy. But, you know, the it's kind of... Uh, an example of extreme central planning, right? So like, you know, the government controlling even how many children you can have. Um, and in a, in a country, a society that values boys, um, you know, there were a lot of ugly things that happened and 30 million women are now missing off the face of the earth. So things like that really shocked me and made me realize, wow, my life would have been completely different if I had grown up here, if I had not moved to the States. 
And I realized that freedom is what made that difference. And I also saw the difference that freedom made in the markets in China versus Hong Kong versus the US. So that's when I first, my eyes were opened to kind of the impact of freedom on my life and on markets. But I, at the time, hadn't really started working in finance. And so I didn't really, I had no idea what an ETF was. Um, so, so I didn't at the time think of doing this and I didn't know it would manifest in this manner. But um, after coming back to the States, I worked at Fidelity and I was a financial advisor in the branches at Fidelity for about 10 years, if you count the time that I was off with uh, when I had a child. So, um, so, so that uh, over time I had a lot of clients who, you know, I worked in California and Texas and I had a lot of clients who uh, were not uh, from the US. So I had a lot of um, clients who were from Russia, from China, who said, hey, I don't want to invest in my home country because of this. And so I realized I was not the only person who felt this way. And then also I saw that emerging markets index investing was growing. And most emerging markets indexes had a huge allocation to China. And so I saw the need for, for this type of kind of a freedom weighted strategy after that. Great. So uh, as we're recording this, we're sort of uh, we're we're seeing more and more headlines about the outbreak of coronavirus. This was a topic that was um, that I, I would say we didn't anticipate when I first asked you to be on the program, uh, and now I don't think it's anyone uh, anticipated this. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, um, and I think it's getting uh, this morning. For instance, I was listening to Bloomberg, Bloomberg Radio. And uh, they said that uh, Goldman now has withdrawn its 2020 outlook yeah. uh, just because they're concerned that all the all the gains that they had projected for the year could be wiped out. So uh, talk a little bit about the financial impact that you're seeing on coronavirus. Do you think that these emerging markets, whether they're free markets or more repressive markets, do you think that they're going to be any more affected than um, you know, larger economies. Uh, just give me your thoughts in general. Yeah, I'm glad you asked this because obviously it's on top of mind. Um, so thoughts in general. So first, um, I do I do not think that emerging markets will be affected harder than developed markets in or U.S. market in um, in in the stock markets, just because the U.S. market um, is already a very at a very high valuation. So um, having kind of a having a situation like a black swan like this um, isn't isn't kind of an instigator to the sell off, and I think it's a very valid uh, reason for a sell off. Um, but and I think it's a healthy correction. But I, I do think that you know, and I what we've seen in the last couple of days of the sell off, and we're in day three um, or, or four, I guess technically. Um, so you know, you've seen that the emerging markets have not fared worse than the U.S. market, for example. Um, and, and that's probably because of valuations more so than the, the actual fundamentals of the coronavirus. So obviously the coronavirus did originate in China um, and China should actually be hit worse than all countries, not just the other emerging markets and not just the U.S. market and other developed markets. But you'll notice that their their stock markets have been extremely stable and calm over mm. the past month, and that's because they've thrown everything. They've thrown the entire the technical term being used right now is the kitchen sink. They've thrown everything at the the market to keep it propped up, and that's because they have to do that because their their stock market is eighty five percent retail, 
And so these are people mm. who are stuck at home right now on quarantine, um, who cannot leave. And they're, they're basically asking for unthinkable things like free speech because of Dr. You know, Li Wenliang's death. This is the, the whistleblower doctor who told everyone about or told just his friends about this virus in December and just warned his friends about it on WeChat, I believe. And then he was mm. arrested and told to basically behave himself. And then he ended up dying from the virus, and there was a huge uproar over over this in China. Uh, in fact, there was such a huge uh, response to it that the government tried to hide his death. So, you know, Global Times or China Daily—I don't remember which one—one one of the one of the uh, propaganda newspapers, you know, re reported his death and then basically retracted it and then reported it again. There are rumors that he was held on life support because of the government was so scared of what the people would do um, and the backlash. And so there was a huge backlash to this. And, and as a result, there was a petition passed around where people were demanding free speech in China. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is unthinkable to the, to, the, to the ruling powers in China right now. And so they have to keep stability at all costs. Um, and that includes keeping the stock market um, somewhat calm. And so they've absolutely done that. Um, and you'll see that in the market, you know, going forward for a while, they have the resources to do that right now. So um, they can keep this up for quite some time. It just, it does kick the can down the road though. So it's absolutely not sustainable, but they can sustain it for a while. So what you'll see right now is a interesting situation where the country that is, should be most affected and whose stock market should most reflect this is China. But since they don't have a free market, or it's relatively less free, let's just say, than say Taiwan or South Korea, right? Their stock market's not gonna get hit as hard in the short term as Taiwan and South Korea, even though they have a much worse, worse situation. Um, but in the long run, it's the countries like Taiwan and South Korea and Vietnam and Indonesia that, you know, the smaller Asian countries and some of the other countries like Mexico even, that are going to be the beneficiaries of a supply chain shift that has already been happening before the coronavirus, but that the coronavirus is, is giving um, companies more of an impetus to speed up. So people have been shifting their supply chains out of China. Companies have been doing this um, because of things like higher production costs in China um, and the trade war, right? But now that the coronavirus has completely shut down production, they have an urgent impetus to kind of speed up that shifting of supply chains. And as that happens, and of course, a lot in India also, a lot of these markets are providing tax incentives and things like that to, to draw these countries to their markets. So, you know, we see this with Foxconn, who produces iPhones, right? So, so Foxconn is shifting production to five other countries right now out of China. So. In the long run, these countries that are being hit the most in their stock markets because they're letting their stock markets freely trade on the bad news are the ones set to benefit from this the most in the long run. So in the short run, it's gonna be more painful for those markets, but in the long run, they're set up to, to benefit. So if I were, I mean, just this is not a recommendation, <laughs> but um, <laughs> if I were to you know, be kind of trading on this, I would actually, and this, this, you know, is not a surprise. 
you know, based on the, 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 you know, the freedom strategy that we have, but I would actually invest in the, the freer emerging markets that are letting their, you know, bad news cycle through the market right now. Those are becoming better bargains at this time. Mm. Um, whereas China propping up their market is preventing it from being a better bargain, um, as they could. So, um, so that's actually an interesting uh, dichotomy going on right now. So you do a, a fair amount of media. Um, what question do you wish that you've been asked on uh, on, on on your <laughs> interviews? Um, so so something that I that's really a good question. There's there's a lot of um, I, I've spoken about this on maybe one or two podcasts, um, so not very many. And and oh, when people ask me, hey, what do you want to be asked? I always I always talk about this story. <laughs> Um, just because I think it's it's so um, it, it's it's so out of my uh, control how this entire project happened, um, and and I love that about it. So you know, freedom is an idea that resonates with people and it's bigger than me. And so we've had just huge industry support and support from the investor community um, for this this product. And I don't and I know that's not because of me. And I and I you know I try to explain this to people, but. They don't understand, and and I try to. You know, so, so this is one of the stories that I tell, which is, how did we get our first seed investor? So, um, you know, when you launch a fund, it's always good to have someone to put money in on day one, right, to get it going. Um, with an ETF, there's a, like a market function that does this. They put in, you know, two point five million, but you have to find the market maker that's willing to do that, and um, they they usually like to get that two point five million back as soon as possible. So same day if possible. Um, so so you know what happened was I um, when I first started having this idea like this is this is obviously this is an alternative to market capitalization weighting, which is the norm in the indexing industry. Um, and someone else at that time was doing the same thing. So Rob Arnott of Research Affiliates was um, doing fundamental weighting at a time when I first maybe started thinking about this. And I was working at Fidelity at the time in Pasadena, and he was also on the same street in Pasadena. Uh, this is before they moved to New Newport Beach later on. Um, and I used to literally stalk their building and just walk past and be like, oh, this is a research <laughs> affiliates building because they were doing non-market cap weighted indexing. And so I was such a fan of theirs. And when I left Fidelity um, years later, I called them and I said, hey, do you, guys, you know, I had this idea, do you guys want to partner on this? And they were just like, please go away. Like they were not interested <laughs> at all. And so, <laughs> um, so I basically, you know, started doing this kind of on my own. And, you know, that same year I went to this big conference called Inside ETFs, which is the biggest ETF conference um, in the world. And um, they, and I, and I uh, met this manager there who basically, he was, he was the, the president of a couple of CFA societies in Tennessee, tiny societies. So he invited me to go speak at his CFA societies. And these were two societies in Chattanooga and Knoxville. Um, and they, I think each of them had like 20 people in the room. And, um, and I spoke at those societies about China and freedom and, you know, new metrics for emerging markets. And then they recommended me to go speak at a society in Tampa, which had 300 people in this event. And I was on the panel with David, Co this guy named David Kotak, who ran his own RIA, um, and BlackRock and Morningstar. This was my first year doing this. I had no idea what was going on. Oh, wow. And so after the panel, David Kotak invites me to this thing called Camp Kotak, which 
if you look it up, it, it's kind of it's, it's called the Shadow Fed because there's so many people on the shortlist for the Fed that go to this camp. It's a bunch of economists and financial luminaries that go fishing for three or four days in this remote part of Maine that's almost in Canada. And at the time, there was no Wi-Fi at this. And I was like, who does this? And so I go to this camp. And you know, all my friends are like, you should go. This is really cool. You can meet like really cool people. So uh, you have to take a seaplane to get into the campsite from the Bangor airport. <laughs> oh, wow. And so the day that I was supposed to arrive, I was I, I actually wasn't planning to take the seaplane. I was planning to drive, but I was tired from my meetings. And um, so I was coming in from New York. On my way to LaGuardia, I called the seaplane company. I was like, hey, is it too late to get a seaplane? I'm coming in today. And they were like, no, you can share with Rob or not. So Rob or not the chairman of the company that I was stalking, um, who was not interested in working with me at all, um, was sharing my seaplane. And, and so it's a two seater, right? So this is how we met. And, you know, we fished together with everyone for the next four days. Um, he caught on, he loved the idea and he's a, he's a very open libertarian. Um, and we hopped on a call together with a potential client, um, sometime after that, afterwards, the client did not invest, but Rob was like, I'll put in a million. And so, so he ended up being my first seed investor. His investment has grown over that time. And um, uh, now he's also invested in the company itself. So uh, that is not, oh, and he doesn't go to this camp every year. He hasn't been since, this is uh. 2016. So he you know, goes maybe every six or seven years max. And the only reason why he was there that year is he lost a bet to Barry Ritholtz, who you know <laughs> runs the you know Masters in Business podcast for Bloomberg. Uh, he lost a bet and he had to go and pay the bet. That's the only reason he was there that, that year. So this is not something that I could have orchestrated. And I like to tell the story so people know that if this is successful, that this was bigger than me. <laughs> I did not orchestrate this and I can't take credit for it. So so that's that's why I um, like to share that story. <laughs> well, I, I love the humility, but there's, uh, there's an expression among... Uh, among founders and entrepreneurs that says ideas are free and uh you didn't just have the idea you executed on it and it's very impressive well, thank you i appreciate it. um so on that note uh perth thank you so much for joining us thank you thanks for having me Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys. 